Thank you so much for joining us. Please enjoy this sermon from our January 31st Foundry service. Thank you. Do you believe in miracles? In a moment of exasperation, tired of being asked questions over and over, tired of being asked to prove things over and over and over again, Jesus answers some of the people who keep questioning whether or not he's going to do what he's going to do, why he's doing what he's doing. He says, oh, you skeptical and unbelieving generation, how much longer do I have to be with you? I wonder sometimes if that skepticism has not been passed on to our generation. I think you and I, we might be living in the most skeptical generation that's ever lived. And why shouldn't we be? You know, we made it into the digital age and into the information age, and now we're in the age of big data, uh, where in, like, everything you do is tracked by somebody online, right? Everything you do, everything you click on, everything is tracked by somebody, and all of that's getting used to direct you and I somehow and, uh, towards uh, marketing and advertising programs that connect us supposedly with what we already uh, didn't even know we wanted to find. Have you ever had one of those experiences where you're talking about something with somebody in the room and then an ad for that thing pops up on your social media feed, right? We might live in the most skeptical generation that's ever lived. And I think part of the reason for that is because there is so much information out there. And because there is so much information and so many ways to access that information, one of the things that we've learned is that there's also a lot of misinformation available. We don't want to be made fools of. We don't want to think that we're reading something that's true or hearing something that's true or seeing something that's true only to find out that we were fools and it wasn't. It was never true. We don't want that to happen, so we're skeptical, right? We want to bet things. We don't want to just believe uh, the first thing that we're told. Do you remember back when the, the internet was a relatively new thing and people kept saying over and over and over again, don't believe everything you read on the internet, right? There's a lot of information out there. And there's a lot of misinformation. So it's natural for us to be skeptical. But I think that the prevalence of information and the prevalence of misinformation and not wanting to be made fools of has made us maybe one of the most skeptical generations that's ever lived. And I think that makes us prone to overlook God's miraculous intervention in the world and in our lives. So we're talking about true stories of faith. And this month, we've been focusing in that capacity on God's healing power. Next month, I'm going to focus on God's divine intervention. All of this month has been leading to today. Because I believe that God's greatest acts of healing often happen miraculously. So today, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a true story about a miraculous healing. And then we're going to talk just a little bit about a few of the things we can remember when we're thinking about or encountering miracles. 
God's spoken word is holy. And before we encounter that, we should pray. Let's do that together. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us. Melt us, mold us, fill us, and use us. But Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us. Amen. I saw the man who was walking with you, holding your hand down the hall. Was he your guardian angel? Tony Folco was being wheeled out of the hospital on the day that she was being discharged. It was the policy of the hospital to discharge everybody, as it is for many hospitals, to discharge everyone in a wheelchair. And so a nurse was rolling her outside to the curb where she was going to be picked up by some family members. A nurse that had been a part of her care team for quite some time. Tony had spent a lot of time in wheelchairs over the last several weeks. I saw the man who was holding your hand in the hall. Was he your guardian angel? Tony wanted to make a difference, like so many of us, right? And so she graduates from college, went to college in the same city that she grew up in. And when she graduated, she ended up getting a job teaching in a local elementary school. And she was loving it. She had just finished her first year teaching. When she found out about an opportunity to go and participate in helping a, a doctor who was local to the Standing Rock Reservation in North Dakota... He put out an advertisement saying, hey, I'm looking for an intern. The job doesn't pay much uh, for the summer, but I, I can promise you that you'll get a lot out of this. And so she answered that invite, and they started writing letters back and forth. This was happening back before the days of digital communication. And so after a little bit of letter writing, she decided that she wanted to, to uh, explore this opportunity to go serve as an intern up at Standing Rock. And so she talked to her parents and said, hey, I think this would be a, a great way to spend the summer. I think it's going to give me a chance to experience something. She said, I've never been outside of the city before. I grew up here, lived my life here, never experienced anything like that. So she decided to go. John met her at the airport when she got off the plane. Got into his old repurposed army jeep and they started driving out onto the Standing Rock Reservation. I don't know if you've ever been there before. I had the pleasure of serving there missionally with the First United Methodist Church of Stroud, one of the, uh, one of the first solo pastorates that I had in ministry. I have been really fortunate uh, to be able to, to serve missionally in a number of countries, in a number of places, while serving on staffs at various United Methodist churches while I was growing in my career. And so by the time I, I, be, I got started getting my first set of solo pastorates, I really wanted to bring that kind of experience to the congregations that I was serving. I'd never been to Standing Rock before. Standing Rock, the Standing Rock Reservation straddles the border of North and South Dakota. The majority of it is in North Dakota. And so I, I talked with my church about it. We decided we wanted to go. We rented a van. A few of us loaded up into the van, and we took off driving through uh, Oklahoma and Kansas and Nebraska and up into South Dakota and then eventually into North Dakota, through the Central Plains, through the Northern Plains. I, I can tell you, if you've never been there, it is 
gorgeous. And if you think that you grew up in a rural environment, but you've never been to the Standing Rock Reservation, you haven't experienced a rural environment yet. I remember driving out there. I timed it one day, spent 45 minutes driving at 55 miles an hour and did not see a single other man-made structure the whole time that I was out there. Not a, not a fence, not a telephone pole, not a shack, not a shed, not a barn, not a house, not a thing for that entire 45-minute drive that we were out there. So many of the small communities in that place were so remote. We had uh, we contacted a uh, local Episcopal diocese that our volunteers in missions organization of the United Methodist Church had a partnership with. And we said, hey, we'd love to come up there. They said, yeah, come on up. And they housed us at an Episcopal campground, most of which had been recently destroyed by a very vicious storm. Some of the buildings were still intact and we could be housed in them, so we did. I remember getting up early in the morning and walking out onto the prairie to watch the sun come up over the hills of Standing Rock. They started driving and very quickly Tony encountered a, a landscape that was much more vast than anything she had anticipated or experienced before. Over the next few days and weeks, John and Tony would go into community after community after community, often driving very long distances where they would take a meager set of supplies that John had purchased uh, from a small government stipend that he used to fund his medical practice on Standing Rock. John had grown up on the Standing Rock Reservation, had gone to school, had gone to medical school, and had come back to the reservation in order to serve his people. And so he would use the small stipend to purchase whatever supplies he could afford. And then he and Tony would take those supplies out to the small, rural, often isolated communities uh, where, where there were not very many people. And they would do whatever it was they could to help the people in that community. While she was out there over those days and weeks that turned into her summer, she started to realize that she was beginning to feel like she was making a, a real difference. I don't know if you've had that experience. I hope that you have. One of my favorite stories is about a young boy who is walking along a beach. I'll bet you've heard this. He's walking along a beach and the beach is just littered with starfish. And so he'll, he'll bend down and he'll pick up a starfish and he throws it back into the water. And then he'd bend down and pick up another starfish and he'd throw it back into the water. Well, this, there's an adult who walks up to him and says, young man, what are you doing? And the young man says, I'm, I'm saving starfish. And the adult looks up and down the beach and sees all the starfish littering the beach and says, you can't possibly save them all. And the young boy reaches down, picks up a starfish, says, I can save this one, throws it into the water. Tony and John were making a difference, not to a lot of people. They're making a big difference to a few people. Maybe the difference that you make, the difference that you've made, the difference you've been 
called to. It may, be, may not be the kind of difference that affects the world on a grand scale. And as silly as it probably has sounded to you over the years when you've heard things like this before, it nonetheless remains true that the more of us who make a small difference together, the more of us who reach out and make a small difference, a big difference in a small place, the bigger the difference that is made across a vast scale. The more of us who share the love of Christ in small ways, non-coercive ways, the broader the reach of the love of Christ throughout and around the world. She realized she was making a difference. And it felt good. It felt good to go uh, to, to community after community, driving long distances in their repurposed army jeep through terrain that was going up and down. The hills of the Standing Rock Reservation are beautiful, but they can also be treacherous. One day they were driving, and they ended up on the side of a hill. They kind of leaned into the hill as you do when you're driving on, a, on an incline, but it wasn't enough, and the jeep started to roll. A few terrifying moments later, Tony was upside down, terrified, hurt. She called out for John's name and was met with silence. Rural is a place they were in. It took a long time for help to get there. Somewhere in that period of time while she was waiting and then help arrived and then it took a long time to get her from where she was to a place where she could be helped and treated, she began to realize that she couldn't feel anything from her waist down. After a long journey and a lot of conversations with people who were trying to help, she ended up back in a hospital city that she had grown up in. John had long since passed away. There she is in the hospital, physicians, nurses, medical staff all around her trying to help her so that she can walk again, trying to help her learn how to walk again, trying to make sense of what had happened to her. And so she, was, she gave everything she had to trying to learn how to do this. She was never the kind of person to give up. And she had a support system. Her family was there. They cared about her. The principal of the school that she had just finished her first year teaching at before she went up to the reservation, reached out to her. These were the days before the Americans with Disabilities Act required handicapped entrances at public buildings. And so none of the schools in her city were handicap accessible, not one. And as it became clear that she was probably not going to walk again, she was going to spend the rest of her life in a wheelchair. Her principal reached out to her and said, we, want, we, would, we would love to have you back. He offered to build a ramp at the school, and yet the school district denied it and denied her request to come back. So there she is, sitting in her bed, propped up by a pillow, when her physician comes in one day, weeks after she's been trying, trying and trying and trying to no avail to make her legs work. And the physician says, Tony, there is just not much more we can do. 
going to have to discharge you tomorrow. And Tony says, please don't do that. I will not give up. I'm going to keep trying. And the physician said, good, keep trying. There's just not anything else we can do for you here. We're going to have to go ahead and let you go home. Closed the door. And Tony sat there in her bed, propped up by a pillow, thinking, trying to figure out what she was going to do now. She couldn't go back to her job. She hadn't had any success trying to make her legs work again. Her mind was racing, going a thousand miles a minute. When she looked up, and on the end of her bed, she saw sitting there, plain as life, John. She would later say that she had the same thoughts that you would probably have, that I would probably have. Trying to make sense of what she was seeing. She thought to herself, am I hallucinating? Did they, did they give me some kind of medicine and I forgot that they gave me? Am I losing my mind? Am I going crazy? She was processing all of that while looking at this person that she had come to know so well who had passed away so many weeks before while she was processing it. John said, it's time to get up. Tony would say, I I didn't know what to say, and I'm not even sure how what I said came out of my mouth. She said, but it was strange to me how easy it was to talk to him. She said, John, I'm not sure I can. And John looked back at her and said, we'll do it together. And she said, he reached out, and he took my hand, and I took his. And she said, I started to feel this pain in my legs, working its way from my waist down through my legs and into my feet. She said, it was a pain like nothing I had ever felt before. She said, I felt pain in places I'd never felt before, and I felt pain in places I hadn't felt at all in weeks She said, he told me to get up. He took my hand and said to get up. Excruciating pain was going through my legs, but she said, I swung over the side of the bed and I put my feet on the ground and slowly holding his hand, I got up. And she said, he looked at me and said, we need to take a step. So Tony took a step. She said, the pain was terrible. But she took another step before she knew it, they were out in the hallway. Holding John's hand, she was out in the hallway, walking down the hall, when the nurses at the nurse's station saw her standing out, walking down the hallway, all by herself, and they ran to her aid, thinking at first that something was wrong, realizing what was happening, they backed off a little bit, so that she could continue to walk. The next day, was full of A lot of poking and prodding, and a lot of physicians saying something about spontaneous something or other. Before she knew it, she was being discharged. It was the protocol of the hospital that, just like it is for so many, that everyone who is discharged is wheeled out of the hospital in a wheelchair. Tony never wanted to see a wheelchair again. 
And so she's thinking about that as she's being wheeled outside. And the moment they get out there, the moment that they're outside waiting for her ride to pull around with the car, and they're alone. She and a nurse who's been working on her case, who's been by her side, who was on duty the night that she walked. When they were alone, the nurse looked at her and said, I saw the man walking with you, holding your hand. Was he your guardian angel? Tony said, yeah, I think maybe he was. The nurse said, did he tell you his name? Tony said his name is John. Later she would talk about how embarrassed she was. She was getting ready to get out of her car to walk back into her elementary school for the first time since she'd been released from the hospital. She said, I, I was walking in with this gait that was anything but graceful, she said, but when I got to my classroom, I started crying and people started clapping because I walked that whole thing by myself. For the rest of her career, her classroom would be full of pictures of Standing Rock. And every summer, she would take a group of students and their parents back to the Standing Rock Reservation. So that people like her, who had never seen anything outside of her city, would have a chance to experience what it felt like to make a difference in a different place. Do you believe in miracles? It's easy to be skeptical. Sometimes it even seems prudent to be skeptical. After all, we don't want to be made fools of. But what happens? What happens when we so badly don't want to be made fools of? What happens when we become so skeptical? that we miss what God is doing right in our very midst. So, let me just invite you to remember three things this morning. As you encounter the miracles of daily life and live into the skepticism that's become so common for our generation. The first of them is this. You may not have experienced it. You may not have experienced it before. Whatever you, you're experiencing now, just like Tony was experiencing, maybe you are or will or have experienced something. You may not have experienced it before. Or maybe you're hearing about something. Maybe you're hearing a story. Somebody's telling you a story about God's miraculous intervention, and you're hearing about it, and you've never, you may have never experienced that before. The fact that you haven't experienced it does not mean that it is not possible. Humans tend to connect logic to experience. More often than not, the logic 
the train of, the logical train of thought, the thought progression that we use to process the world we live in and make decisions that seem to be rational, that logic is very often connected to human experience. Let me give you an example. There was a time when everybody knew that the earth was flat. Everybody knew that. Everybody knew the earth was flat. And so it was logical that you would not sail your ship very far into the ocean. Because everybody knew that if you did, you were going to sail right off the edge of the earth. But then, human experience changed. And when human experience changed, the logic that we use to make rational decisions as we process the world and our place in it changed. Somebody at some point said, hey, you know, when I see a ship coming at me on the horizon, I see the mast of the ship first, and then it sort of rises like it's coming up out of the water. It can't be coming up out of the water. I wonder if maybe the earth is round. And you know what people said? You're stupid. That doesn't make any sense. The earth is not round. Everybody knows that the earth is flat. But with more experience, we discovered that, in fact, the earth is round. And our logic changed as a result of our experience. If you haven't experienced something, we are prone. It is a natural human tendency to connect our willingness to believe and to make decisions upon our experience of something. You may not have experienced it. You may be experiencing God's miraculous healing, God's miraculous intervention in a way that you've never experienced it before. Or maybe you're just hearing about it. Maybe like today, you're just hearing a story from another person about another person and you haven't experienced anything like that. That may be true. So remember this. Because it will help you to do the last thing I'm going to ask you to do. Remember that you may not have experienced it, but the fact that you haven't experienced something does not make it impossible. Similarly, remember this as well, it is only a miracle because you don't understand it. Well, pastor, are you saying that God's miraculous intervention isn't as miraculous if you... No, that's not what I mean at all. I mean we have a tendency to consider things as miracles because we don't yet understand how they work. When God works, when God intervenes and does things that you and I think are miraculous, God knows exactly how they work. For God, God's intervention in a miraculous way is a natural part of the process that God has created when God created all things. God knows what God is doing. You and I don't. At least not always. It's a miracle to you because you don't understand how it works. So remember this. Don't presume that partial knowledge, that partial understanding is the same thing as complete knowledge. I believe that it's important to be a lifelong learner. I love to learn. If you know me very well, you know that about me. I'm in my fourth degree program. I'm going to be 44 years old this year. And I'm in my fourth degree program because I love to learn. But there, there are so many ways to do that. You know, you can do it formally through a school or a degree program. And I so highly value the people who spend their time teaching others in environments like that. But there are so many other ways to learn things. Be a lifelong learner. 
I believe that God wants that. I believe that God wants us to continue to learn, to continue to grow, to continue to discover. I believe that it is possible to discover without subjugating. I believe that it is possible to learn and grow without controlling. So learn and grow and discover. Never stop doing that. But as you're doing it, don't mistake partial understanding for complete knowledge. We have a partial understanding at best. I love learning what other people have learned. Have you ever heard the phrase that you don't know what you don't know? I love that phrase because it means two things. This is going to be hard to follow on a Sunday morning, so stay with me. It means two things. It means that you don't know things that you don't know until somebody teaches you. It also means that you don't even know where to begin because you have no way of knowing what you don't know. Where do you start? Because you don't even know the things that you don't know. So learn and grow. Discover in a way that does not subjugate, in a way that does not control, because I believe that is very possible. Learn and grow in a respectful and honorable way by paying attention to the people who are experts in their field. Does the fact that they're an expert in their field, whatever it is, and you may be one of them, does that mean that they know all things? Of course not. But enjoy learning about what they've discovered. As you do, be grateful. Be grateful for some of the advancements that come from those discoveries. Be grateful for some of the things that we're able to do because of the advancements that come from those discoveries. I remember one day when my car broke down, on, it's not a new car, really old car, broke down on the side of the road. I'd still be there right now if somebody hadn't cared enough to stop and help me. I remember a day not all that long ago when the same thing happened and I pulled out my cell phone and called for help. Some of the discoveries have led to changes that are good and safe and helpful. Be thankful for that. But remember that our understanding is partial at best. There's a difference between our partial understanding and God's complete knowledge. God knows what God is doing. So when you encounter, when you encounter a miracle when something is happening or you're hearing about something that's happened to another person, remember that much like the first thing I asked you to remember, the fact that you don't understand how it works does not make it impossible. And that leads to the last thing I'm going to ask you to remember, which is this. The day that you choose to once again look at the world through the eyes of a child is the day that you will start to live again. There are a couple of teachings that Jesus offers about children. In one instance, the disciples are doing what the disciples are supposed to do. Jesus is really popular. People are coming from all over to hear him talk, to see if they can touch part of his garment or his arm or something so that the power coming through God incarnate will flow out into them. There's stories of that happening. Does God intervene in the world? Absolutely God does. We're going to talk about that a lot next month. But for now, 
the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ is probably the greatest and best example of God intervening in the world. And the scriptures are full of stories of it. So are the lives of the people you know. They're full of stories of God intervening. The disciples are doing what they're supposed to do. Jesus is really popular. And so they're trying to keep people away so that Jesus can walk and so Jesus can talk and so Jesus isn't constantly assaulted by the barrage of people trying to touch his arm or his garment or something. And there are some children who are trying to get to Jesus and so the disciples do what the disciples are supposed to be doing or at least they think they are and they try to stop the kids from coming to Jesus and Jesus says, don't stop them. Do not hinder them from coming to me. Did you by chance grow up in a time or in a household when you were taught that children should be seen and not heard? God bless the churches who have enough wisdom and a strong enough foundation in the scriptures to encourage their children to be seen and heard. Jesus says, don't hinder them. Don't stop them. Let them come to me. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. There's another place where Jesus says, unless you reframe the way you look at the world, unless you reframe your worldview to be like that of a child, the kingdom of heaven will not be open to you. Here's what he means by those things. Children don't know what they don't know. I want you to listen to that, because you just heard me say it a minute ago. Children don't know what they don't know until somebody teaches them, right? But children do know that they don't know. Children don't know what they don't know, but they know that they don't know. And so they approach the world with this sense of wonder, especially in every time they encounter something new. It's a wondrous thing, uh, full of a, a kind of an amazement that sticks with you until you have so much experience that things don't carry the sense of wonder that they carried anymore. Do not try this at home. I don't remember for sure why. I remember it was time, uh, Dad was teaching me about fire. We had a uh, advent wreath on our table. We did that every year. We put an advent wreath on our table in our dining room and we would light the advent candles, right? Do not do this at home. Don't do it anywhere for that matter. Just don't do it at all. But we're sitting there and dad's teaching me about fire. Dad said, you know, Matt, it, you can actually, uh, as long as you don't keep your finger in the flame, you can put your finger through the flame of the fire and it won't be burned. And I watched him do that several times. Do not do this at home or anywhere else. I, I watched him do that several times, and I was in awe. My younger sister was in awe. The first time he did it, he stuck his finger through the flame, and I was waiting. I thought his finger was going to burst into flames when it came out the other side, and it didn't, and it didn't even seem to hurt him. I was in amazement of that. I was in awe. The first time I saw a rainbow, the first time I saw a double rainbow, I was in awe. The first time I saw the ocean, I was in awe when I, when I, the first time uh, I had a chance to learn about how trees work. I was in awe when I, when I first learned that every single snowflake is different from every other snowflake. Do you remember that? And then trying to go outside and catch them on your hand and look at them before they melted. Look at the world. 
through the eyes of a child. It's okay to realize that you don't know what you don't know, but never forget that you don't know. One of my favorite shows a long time ago, a little, um, it was a little sitcom, and it was about a high school girl who had encountered God. There was a character who played God, actually several characters who played God, um, and God was encountering this girl and trying to talk to her and teach her, and it was supposed to be kind of funny. And I remember one, in one of the early episodes, she's trying to get the character who played God to prove that you know, it was God. And so she says, well, we'll do a miracle. If you're really God, I want you to, to work a miracle right now. They're standing outside. And so the character who's playing God points to a tree. And, and the, the girl, main character, says, that's just a tree. And the character who's playing God says, well, let's see you make one. Your life is full. Your life is full of the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit. All that you need to do to see that is choose to once again look at the world you live in through the eyes of a child. When you do, I suspect you'll begin to see that some of God's greatest acts of healing are miraculous. Would you pray with me? God, give us hearts and minds and spirits that are open to the mystery of your holiness. Give us hearts and minds and spirits that remember that partial understanding is not the same thing as complete knowledge, that the fact that we haven't experienced something does not make it impossible. So that we can remember to look at the world that you've created for us through the eyes of a child. And in so doing, see once again the miraculous majesty of your holiness making a big difference in little ways all around the world. This we ask in your holy name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Please check back next week.